Hello and welcome to In the Skies of Love, a podcast dedicated to the classic anime series Legend of the Galactic Heroes. My name is Kamel and I invite you to accompany me as I make my way through the classic space opera for the first time. Joining us on our voyage are our guides Tom and Joel, two diehard fans. Together we'll be reviewing and analyzing each episode of Legends of the Galactic Heroes, exploring its complex characters, intricate political machinations, and breathtaking space battles. We'll delve into the themes, symbols, and historical references that make this series a timeless classic, sharing our thoughts and insights with you as we journey through the skies of love and war in Legend of the Galactic Heroes. So sit back, relax, and join us on this epic adventure. Well, that was beautiful. Yeah, I did that well, right? That was good, yeah. I don't know if I call myself a diehard fan. Um, I mean, I I like Bruce Willis. But, uh, you know. Okay, cutting that joke out. Um... Yeah. <laughs> I'm come up with a new one every time. Uh, so this week we're going to be uh, covering episodes three, four, and five. Uh, as Birth of the 13th Fleet. Uh, you wrote feet in the Google Doc, Joel. Um, uh, um... <laughs> episode four, Empire's Afterglow. And episode five, the Castrop Rebellion. Uh, yeah, so I guess we can go through kind of each of the episodes one by one, and then maybe we can talk at the end about this sort of thematic arc, or whether this even is a thematic arc, because I think we picked them because it's kind of three in between episodes, between two arcs. Yeah, yeah I thought we should watch um, more than one episode. And when I looked up the episode list, we have one set in. Three Planets Alliance, one set in the Empire, and then it kind of felt like the next one was connected to the previous one too yeah. much to not do the back to back. So, yeah, it's sort of an arc, but or two small arcs. Um, yeah, so maybe we can maybe we can just start with uh, what did you think of these these the first episode, Birth of the Thirteenth Fleet. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you how did you do, uh, find the opening where you're immediately introduced to a new character in Yang Wenli's house? <laughs> um, maybe we should read the plot summary out for the third one. Oh yeah, first. okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, Yang Wenli returns to the Free Planets Alliance capital on the planet Heinesen. Is that how you pronounce it? Heinesen, yeah. yeah uh, Secretary of Defense Job. 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 Yep, Job. Job uh, Trunick holds a memorial for the soldiers who fell at the Battle of Astarte. During his speech, Jessica Edwards confronts Trunick, criticizing the government for praising the war dead while refusing to fight themselves. She is forcibly removed from the auditorium and is pursued by the patriotic Night Score, who intend to kill her. She is, however, rescued by Yang Wenli and Dusty Attenborough. Wow. Uh, Yang then succeeds in protecting Jessica long enough to convince Trunick to call off the PKC. The following day, Yang Wenli is promoted to the rank of Rear Admiral and given command of the newly formed 13th Fleet and is ordered to capture the Empire's Iserlone Fortress, which, has, which had thus far managed to completely repel every Alliance attempt to capture it. Okay, I remember this episode now. I actually didn't until I read that. Uh, um, well, yeah, that's the thing. Because yeah. I, I watched uh, 5 and 4 more recently and I watched 3 a, a little mm-hmm. while ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, I'm actually going to start with the intro. Because I have some more thoughts about the intro. Mm-hmm. Um, the opening notes of the song, 
sound very 1966 Star Trek to me. Mm, like that's true. Yeah, they do. It's yeah. deliberate to me in how how close it is in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear it. Uh, you you guys yeah. also mentioned that the singer has like a shaky note where she doesn't quite hit it, and I heard it yeah. this time. <laughs> Which I feel bad saying. Yeah, I really do I mean, think that's I... the en- engineer's fault. They should really have put that and fixed it. I wonder how many, I agree, yeah. how many takes did they do? The, my favorite thing about this, and I don't want to spoil too much, is that you get to look forward to this every every season. Every season they put in a note that she's just struggles with. That, that's the thing. It's like you say it should have been the engineers, but it's every single intro song. Again, no no shade thrown on the artist. I think these these songs are actually quite vocally demanding. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, she manages to mess up a note on basically every one of the intro songs. So yeah, you have that to look forward to. Um, to the point where it starts to feel like maybe it's like an artistic choice. You know, is it supposed to represent something? Is it you know, the discord in the galaxy or something? Um, perfect. Wow. That is a deep breeze. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, so while we're talking about mistake, these um, uh, these plot summaries that I've pulled from the uh, wiki mm-hmm. are full of typos, like absolutely packed full of typos. <laughs> and I think that the people who whoever whatever whatever wonderful people put together the 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 Legends of Galactic Heroes wiki should um, get a quality assurance manager personally. Okay. So yes, okay, let's let's start with the actual. So when we opened the episode, yeah, Tom mentioned we are thrown into Yang Wenli's um, uh, suburban home, uh, and uh, we're introduced to a, a brand new character, um, completely cold open onto a brand new character. Um, how, how did you feel about this? Uh, is this is this true neck you're referring to? No, no. Um, which which character? Char- the character. Uh, there's a character in in Yang Wenli's home. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Julian, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Julian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. I was confused uh, at their relationship. I did not know if he mm-hmm. was Ju- Julian was like um, Yang Wenli's little brother, or mm-hmm. his assistant, mm-hmm. or I, I I don't know. It's a very strange relationship those two have. I'm not quite a butler. Like I'm not clear on what <laughs> is going yeah. on there i was also extremely confused the first time uh he, he yeah. appeared uh, because they don't bother really to explain it for a while or maybe not not bother is maybe not the right phrase they intentionally choose not to uh explain <laughs> who he is or why he's there for for a while you're just it does uh, seem intentional yeah. because the show has a desire to explain a lot by using the narrator to give backstory, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like episode five, which we'll get mm-hmm. to, but that explains quite a lot of background to the central mm-hmm. conflict of that episode. Um, but Julian is like, "Hey, you'll get it eventually. Don't worry about it." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all the way through episode three, the first time I watched it, all the way until the end, like, who is this guy? Like, where did he come from? <clears throat> Was he on the ship in like the first two episodes? Was I supposed to remember him? Because obviously, there's like a trillion characters in the first two episodes. So I did wonder, like, whether I had just forgotten something. Um, is it? But is no, it more oversight by the writer, or is it deliberate, like a mystery that you should be thinking about? It's definitely not a mystery. I don't know whether it's oversight either. Um, 
what's weird about it is that like i feel like as viewers you are just supposed to understand what their relationship is immediately um which uh, yeah, this feels surprising the first time I watched the show because until much later on, their relationship wasn't really clarified. Um, I guess there are some hints to it in this episode. But yeah, it's it's definitely not supposed to be a mystery or anything. Mm. Um, Can I tell you what it remi- reminds me of? Mm. I don't know if you've ever watched the television show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, Tom, Tom has. I, I, I have, a long time ago. In season... So, uh, Buffy's a single child. Uh, what do you call it? A single child? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in season five, they just uh, out of nowhere yeah. introduced that she has a little sister. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like with, with that explanation, and then that becomes a plot point that she appeared out of nowhere halfway through the that season. Yeah. I see, I see. Yeah, I remember being very confused about that and wondering if I'd missed a season or an episode and spent yeah. ages trying to work out what it, which must have been really confusing for the people watching it the very first time around. Um, it eventually makes sense. I, this this is not like that. This is just a guy who lives with Yang Wenli. And um, at some point you get to hear more about his backstory and then you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the show does throw you for a spin at the beginning. Is this his son or his brother or his you know, his boyfriend, like, what is going on here? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, no, there's no mystery. The show just, just throws you into it. Um, is that, is, uh, Julian meant to mirror, um, Siegfried in a way? Hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, the show is full of these, like, mentor-mentee relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe we can, yeah, we'll talk about this, I guess, in, in the episode four when we, when we move on to it as well. Um, but I feel like the Siegfried, uh, Kirky, uh, the Kirky Lohengram relationship is much more like equitable, like less like mentor mentee uh, dynamic. Like they kind of bounce off of one another. I... Obviously, one has like actual yeah. established power. Um, but yeah, in, yeah, as individuals, they, uh, they rely on each other quite heavily. Yeah, I, uh, we'll get to that because I, I don't know that yeah. I fully agree. Um, mm. <clears throat> Yang Wenli also at the beginning of this episode, um, I wrote he reminded me a little bit of uh, L from uh, Death Note. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I, so maybe this is just a trope in anime or something. The like mm-hmm. the, the the casual genius, mm-hmm. like so smart that he just doesn't care. Like, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. But also. Do you get what I'm saying? He's not. He doesn't have the idiosyncrasies of L or those types of characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> again, uh, so um, a lot of people have interpreted like Yang Wenli's character as the uh, Taoist fool archetype, like um, because the writer is so familiar with Chinese history, a lot of the characters are like drawn from those philosophies, like from Spring Autumn period or Warring States period. Um, and I think that most of Yang Wenli's like personality traits like that, where he's sort of clueless and casual and a genius, but also uh, yeah, lazy and um, this kind of stuff. I think most of it's drawn from there. I wouldn't be surprised if his character then affected like tropes in anime later on, um, because definitely like the show is was in the eighties like hugely popular. Mm-hmm. So um, 
but I'm, I'm not sure if it was a trope beforehand. I think it's, I don't know enough about anime from before 1980, I'd say for sure. But um, what, what yeah. is the name of this trope? The Taoist Fool, did you say? Taoist Fool, yeah. Is part of that trope that um, you sneak alcohol and brandy with your tea in the morning, <laughs> as he does? Exactly. Probably yeah, there is. Actually. There, it is. There's like a really famous <clears throat> poem oh, by, oh, I can't remember which one, which of the masters it is, but who talks about basically being so drunk on his porch in the middle of the day that he can't go back inside to get food. So he's just like wasted on his porch and just watching the world go by. And that's the uh, the whole poem. Um, that sounds like classic Yang Wen Lee to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's people have mentioned it, yeah, uh, especially like... Um, a lot of the people I've followed on Twitter who are into Legend uh, of the Galactic Heroes make jokes about him being a Taoist archetype um, quite a lot. So, uh, One of the other things that I, I guess that made me think that Julian's story was a bit of a mystery was they make a casual reference to... Um, I don't know if it's Yang Wenli or if it's Julian, I forget now, but them having a father that had debts as a merchant mm. that maybe led to him joining the military mm -hmm. yeah i think what happens is um julian says that he wants to be a soldier when he grows up which was useful to know because i wasn't quite sure how old he was supposed to be when he was first introduced so i guess he's he's there introduced as not not an adult uh and he says he wants to be a soldier because his father his late father was a soldier so we also know that his father is dead um and then Yang Wenli says, you don't have to be the same profession as your dad. My dad was a merchant and now I'm a soldier. Right. But yeah, he does mention that his dad like was penniless when he died or something like this, right? Like mm, maybe I don't remember that. No. Yeah, I wrote down that he had debts as a merchant. Mm, okay. Mm. I think that all of this is kind of earning the fact that Yang Wenli is like a reluctant soldier, right? Like, it doesn't really gel with his character to have entered the military willingly. So he kind of has to have a backstory um, that places him in a situation where he's forced to become a soldier or encouraged to become a soldier. Um, I think in these early episodes, and in this episode maybe in particular, that he's very reluctant to take on more power. He's very skeptical and um, afraid of it he uh, he doesn't really seem like he particularly wants to get promoted to this new role that he gets promoted to and um or, or any of the fame for the the i don't know the battle that's just happened he's um he kind of do without it i guess he, he makes a point about only wanting to read about military history mm -hmm. yeah rather than make it which I guess yeah. is what he's doing right now by being so young yeah. and uh, being promoted and whatnot. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing about Yang Wenli that will become clear is his desire to be a historian, but being forced to do a different job. Um, it's very much like a self-insert by the writer, at least from my perspective. <laughs> uh, like, my original character, Do Not Steal. He's so cool. Uh, he's so smart. He just wants to do history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, which, you know... He, He's a really good character, so you know you get a pass. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, uh, I had a question. 
which was, is the military of the FPA only men? Uh, no. But it, it, yeah, it's definitely mostly men okay. in the show. Yeah, or at least what we see in the show, yeah. I think yeah, this will wondering. be a asset of the show that we'll talk about more at some point about the huge array of male characters and the very few female characters that are in the show. Um, maybe when some of those female characters have more of their arcs will become a lot more noticeable that um, that, that is the case. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, the show is not particularly interested in the stories of women in general. I don't think that's a con- controversial uh, statement. Um, most of the women in the show don't get particularly complex arcs. Um, and compared to some of the characters, some of the male characters in the show, they get really underwhelming, extremely underwhelming arcs. Um, so, mm. uh, yeah. But we'll, we'll go into that later on, I think, when, when that becomes more egregious as the show goes on. Mm. Um, so after this, we go to the... Um the is, is it the president making a speech to like a stadium full of people yeah yeah it's yeah. like defense secretary of defense or something like that i think yeah yeah pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty high ranking. Post, yeah. yeah yeah oh this is tunic um, right i did yeah trim height or trim height trim height okay i can't remember how they pronounce his name in the show but um i did write the gang pulls a sickie because basically everybody like the whole it's so funny, Yang Wenli is like asleep and he's like, oh, I don't want to go in. I just want to get drunk at home. And then like uh, Dusty Attenborough calls him and he's like, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> what, what an incredible name that they've chosen for that character. Yeah. <laughs> How can we communicate that this guy is supposed to be American? Like in the shortest, most uh, concise way possible. Dusty well, Attenborough. Well, Dusty says that to me, but Attenborough says British. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> um, that that uh, do you, where where is he giving the speech? It feels like a sports stadium, but the world's largest sports stadium. It's it's very dark, very creepy. I, I found yeah. the whole thing very like um, evil empire looking. So, I actually wrote about this because I wanted to ask you about it. Um, like the architecture that they've chosen for the Free Planets Alliance, like. I guess this is like an assembly building, like a, um, like the UN or like you know uh, something like this, because you have loads of citizens like packed into a hall to yeah. hear this speech. Like, yeah. But like all of the architecture in that scene, to me, made all the characters feel super insignificant. Like there's a bit where uh, Jessica Edwards like steps out into the car park or whatever. Mm. I don't know if it's supposed to be the car park. And it's just this like concrete desert, yeah, like, this expanse of nothing mm. going off into the distance, um, and it makes her feel like really tiny. And like you say, like the, the sports hall that they're in is just this uh, like absolutely colossal uh, space that's like dark and um, and frightening and and all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, I don't know. It to me, all yeah, all the talk of democracy in that <clears> scene uh, seemed very contrasted with the architecture but maybe i don't know what the real world influences are maybe you know um i'll tell you that i found the architecture uh, like the architectural design of that scene and the exterior where she's walking out the mm-hmm. into the barren landscape uh to be kind of incoherent because mm-hmm. the, the interior of that hall 
uh, felt less than like a, a UN central, you know, yeah. um, co- uh, uh, Congress and more like a sports stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, the size mm-hmm. just felt that big. But then when she's leaving the building, um, it's a skyscraper made of gold. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. It doesn't feel like those two are the same space, but it, it's clearly implied to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess it, it doesn't have to actually architecturally make sense. It's, it's fine. It can be represented. Uh, mm-hmm. But I guess you could you could argue that like it's saying on the outside it looks gold and shiny and everyone loves it and it's a beacon to to the to the world. But when you go inside and the core is dark and scary, um, mm-hmm. you know there, there's some there's a reason architects always when they design democratic buildings and stuff, buildings for democracy, they're always like, and there's a lot of transparency and gloss in the building to, you know, uh, the, the democratic process is transparent. Um, it's really right. like, so, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, maybe that's surface level thinking, but it is architects love that stuff. Um, and, and it also is, it's strange in the way that like, why would you build the center of your democracy out in this barren landscape? You would, you would build it in the yeah. middle of the city. Like, that's where you'd want it to be, mm-hmm. where the people are. But no, it's in the middle of yeah. nowhere where rampant gangs of, like, right-wing extremists can kill you right in front of the building. Yeah. So maybe it yeah. is accurate in a way, you know? Maybe that is <laughs> yeah. real. Um, yeah, I, I found the uh, the Empire's architecture makes more sense to me than the FBA's, mm-hmm. at least yeah. co- coherently from the inside. Yeah, I remember being quite weirded out by the whole especially the yeah the outside where she where she's walking down the the pavement or whatever and it's so empty um mm-hmm. you're like how, how, how could it be so empty that hall was packed full of people um yeah yeah but i guess it's I just made sort as of much as not have wanted to draw fifty thousand cars yeah right yeah i think it emphasizes her particular journey in that moment and like how she's feeling um and also it feels like the yeah the, the democratic process i guess has already drifted on this planet it's like it doesn't it's as you say it's not in the middle of the city it's kind of removed and it's it's mm-hmm. obviously from the from the speech that he gives you can tell that it's completely not um what it's supposed to be anymore um and the scenery maybe is also yeah kind of yeah know. It's the kind of building that would be built um, by the government in power in a not very democratic state with a lot of money, if you get yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, in, in a space where they have space to do it. Yeah. I'm not naming mm-hmm. any countries, but I think you get the <laughs> sort of idea that I'm getting at. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I think is sort of, I don't know, maybe that's a bit ahead of its time because I feel like that's quite a modern thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, it feels like that section of the story, it feels like a planned community. Like, it feels like the heart of government has been, like, removed and transplanted out into the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, like, like as you say, it should have been in the centre of the city and all this kind of stuff. And, yeah, you can make the argument that they just didn't want to draw, like, 50,000 cars or they didn't want to draw, like, a city backdrop. But if you are cost-cutting, there are still creative decisions you make which inform... Uh, you know how how your scene feels uh like to me it reminded me of uh, there's like a book called the nightland uh where there's like this large like structure just in the middle of the desert um, and then the whole world has just become a wasteland outside of this massive tower 
Um, cause when she's coming out, it really does feel like the end of the world, you know, when she's, she's yeah. looking out across the, the concrete landscape and yeah, like you say, countries that won't be named and the sort of <laughs> buildings that uh, get constructed in, in just these, um, empty, like barren landscapes where there's nothing to inform them or to support them. Um, which, uh, yeah, um, it was iconic uh, buildings without a context. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like iconic for the sake of it. And there you, you see like aesthetics or um, uh, sort of presentation, like seeping into democracy, right? Like uh, in that, that presentation. And yeah, it's nuts, right? Like she, oh, well, yeah, we'll get to it, but she comes outside and there's just fascists like roaming this, uh, this wasteland outside of, uh, outside of the government building. Yeah, I think the aesthetics is a good segue into that that section, I guess, where you suddenly have these guys who are clearly uniformed, um, somehow connected with the state, who are just 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 a just a mob, basically, just a gang, mm-hmm. um, but with some kind of official capacity, um, and how undemocratic that 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 is. Do do they have an official capacity? I sort of understood them to be, um like the equivalent of the proud boys in america yeah who yeah, are like, yeah. you know trump doesn't support them wink wink you know like mm, yeah rather than having official id government backs yeah i definitely think that's the implication they kind of say that they're trin heights personal uh army right mm. so it's like he has uh and again he, he has like plausible deniability because of his separation from them but yeah mm. I don't think that they're like directly tied to the state, but they are tied to Trun Heights' uh, political project. Um, right. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It it was very shocking watching it for the first time, especially in the context <clears throat> that we watched it the first time, because it was like, uh, you know, in the early twenty twenties uh, at some point on 2020 when we uh, first watched it. It was during coronavirus. Mm. I think it was yeah, winter. Yeah. Uh. And there have been things like, you know, um, the capital riots and these sorts of things and these uh, paramilitary groups or, you know, uh, um, sort of uh, informal groups of, of thugs that had become associated with very specific political projects. Um, Just happened in, the in news, Brazil, right? right? With uh, yeah, the people who took over exactly. the capital who were Bolsonaro supporters. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think we um, had of course, the like, Black Lives Matter oh, protests over that summer and then watched it in the autumn or something. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was quite surprising seeing a show from the 80s. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising because these things don't really change. It's easy to project sort of your, uh, your own uh, disbelief into the past. But, of course, these groups still existed in the 80s um, and, uh, and in the 90s. But... Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it felt very real somehow, and the the speed with which it escalates as well in the story, uh, where they attack her, they try and kill her, and then they go to attack like someone who is ostensibly a, a hero of the state uh, in his home, um, basically uh, immediately. Um, yeah, it's all very. Yeah, yeah, it, it's all very um, intense. I guess this this sequence. Well, well, they, well, they, they do that after she um, makes a big speech at the, at the president in the, mm. in that meeting, 
um, yeah. or during his speech. I thought it was strange that she was able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Like she yeah. wasn't stopped by security. Um, yeah. That the cameras didn't turn away, you know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was reminded of um, a scene from one of my favorite movies, The Social Network, where uh, <laughs> Andrew Garfield does his little walk up to to Mark Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. um, and and like because they focus on her walking up to him for a long time, I think before mm-hmm. she starts screaming at him, which is what Andrew Garfield does in in the film. <laughs> Um, anyway, I'm saying Andrew Garfield could play Jessica Edwards in the live screen adaptation. Yeah, uh, of... I mean there were there are already too many roles for women in a Legend of Galactic Heroes <laughs> adaptation, so yeah, yeah, we've got to keep it balanced. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know, like maybe I'm reading into it too much, but this sort of like the ability of a citizen to like approach the podium or to not be stopped. Um, feels to me like kind of a hangover from a more democratic time, right? Like um, that uh, if she's allowed to do that and then, you know, he, he tells the guards to take her away and sort of, um, but that like maybe in the past, this was more healthy and more, more allowed. Oh, I, I had another note about um, his, his speech, True Knight's speech. Yeah. Um, he makes a lot of references to uh, a free land and a homeland uh, he mm-hmm. keeps saying homeland, in fact, and I thought that was sort of, um, I, I couldn't imagine how that could be accurate. They're the free planetary mm-hmm. alliance, so surely they have hundreds, thousands of homelands. Mm-hmm. The idea of like putting all of those worlds with disparate cultures and peoples, I assume, and assimilating it, mashing it up into this idea of a homeland seems very... Yeah. maybe i'm reading too I mean, much I into think... his right-wing leanings but no no I mean, but i mean i think that that is what right-wing movements or like far-right movements do anyway right like if you look at germany and austria before world war ii uh you have like a plethora of different like cultures and subcultures within that community where like swabians didn't see themselves as as like Zarlanders or these sorts of things you mm. know but as a as a right-wing uh, sort of you know um authoritarian ruler you have to bring these disparate groups under the same identity um and i think that like you basically have to invent that identity um from from something uh so yeah i mean i think it's just doing the same process on a on a larger scale right right like it's uh yeah um on a sort of interplanetary scale um, i guess it was so off-putting to me i guess i'm saying i would have been a separatist in the fba <laughs> yeah yeah. I'd be leading it or yeah. be part of an independence movement. Mm-hmm. Do they, um, <clears throat> um, at, while, I, while I was watching the show, I was playing the video game Citizen Sleeper. Uh, not simultaneously. Around the same time. And have you guys played it? No, no, it's on, on my list. Yeah. It's good. Uh, I recommend it. Um, but they make a point in that game that uh, you're on a... Um, you know, a sort of rim world or whatever in the system, mm-hmm. and the rim worlds do a job of making money for the central planets mm-hmm. in the way that I don't know, colonies did for Britain back in the day. Mm-hmm. Is is a does the same process happen with the FPA? Are there like lesser worlds that are colonized that make money and you know produce things for the the central powers of the FPA, or maybe for the Empire, it works that way or something. We definitely see that 
on the Imperial side. Like there will be episodes later on where you'll go to rural worlds or to like prison worlds mm-hmm. um, and these sorts of things. I think on the Free Planets Alliance side, you don't see that to my memory. Like you don't get to go to these uh, sort of extractive um, places like where wealth is just being pulled out. Uh, but on the Imperial side, you definitely you definitely do like later on. So the Imperial side is more equivalent to like a colonizing empire and the FPA is more equivalent to like an like an EU project or NATO or something like this? I think so. I mean, we'll go into the history of the two sides like later on as well. Um, but yeah, so I mean, certainly the empire is very centralized at the beginning of the show. Um, and there's a clear hierarchy of, uh, you know, the planets, like where they where they sit. It's, it's interesting now that you mention it because I don't remember if the show takes us to any of these places in the Free Planets Alliance that aren't really well off or, you know, sort of, um, they all feel very similar. Um, so in that sense, yeah, maybe it's more of a, uh, um, a federalization project. Yeah, I, I also can't really think of too many times it happens. I remember it, there being a sort of arc really late in the show, like final season maybe, where there is a, there is a planet that becomes kind of relevant that I guess is part of the Free Planets Alliance, I, I think. Um, and I feel like there might be a couple of times where there, there's these sort of fringe planets that get traded back and forth every so often um, that get explored. But I think, it, yeah, it's definitely oh, more yeah. explored on the on the Empire side mm-hmm. than the Free Planets Alliance. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's implied that the the Free Plants Alliance is also quite a lot smaller than the Empire. Um, I, I think. Cool. So after um, the PKC nearly take out Jessica Edwards, she's saved by Yang Wenli and Dusty Attenborough, mm-hmm. right? In their mm-hmm. set car. Um, <laughs> I, I, half of my notes are honestly just like, what a sick design for this little thingy that they've got. <laughs> Um, and I make reference to um, the the PKC having like it looks like a Casio calculator, but they use mm, it to track yeah, yeah. the car. I think. Yeah, it's like now, a proto smartphone, right? Where they're like typing in the. Yeah. Now the reason I was asking earlier, like, are they government approved or not, is because why would they have a device that could track cars if they weren't like the police? What What do you mean, the police? siding with a with a fascist yeah, um, I guess you're right. okay. <laughs> um, yeah i actually made a note about that as well the fact that like they were immediately able to look up like what is presumably a police database yeah um and you're like yeah yeah and it's the car right of like move. a military like high-ranking military official right they're like oh it's yeah. dusty Attenborough's yeah. car isn't he like friends with yang wenli they're both really important yeah. oh well let's just go let's go and bomb their house anyway um we we go back to a meeting at um true knight's office i think Um, after the raid on young wenley's house yeah yeah they they go to his residence uh and they call the fire the fire brigade right Mm. yeah because they try and Uh, blow up the house yeah the fire brigade the coolest of the emergency services turns up and scares the uh yeah the, well, the, the, the fire truck looks really cool. 
they look like optimus prime got a glow up you know what i mean it, it looks really good have you ever seen those videos of um french firefighters uh like beating up uh like fascists and police officers oh um it's like it happens quite a lot in france it's like a because the firefighters were one of the groups who stormed the Bastille. They were the ones who like broke the door down during oh. the storming of the Bastille. So they have like a really strong tradition of uh, um, protest and like anti-authoritarianism. Um, yeah. so, so I don't know if that was a reference to that. Okay. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, he so says he says something like the... the house. Yeah. I think he they they uh, so they turn up and then they have a megaphone and they demand that they i don't it's not really clear what they want i don't think they demand that he s- surrenders himself or anything in particular they just call him a traitor for harboring someone who they've recently deemed as traitorous for saying something in in the um this public assembly thing and then they just throw a grenade through the window um i think they're just trying to kill him yeah yeah they basically just try and kill him um and he turns on the fire hydrant outside um it's very like sort of home alone um yeah. <laughs> there were a few yeah. like moments in, in all of these episodes where i was like this is this is kind of hokier than i remember um yeah. and this yeah. was one of those bits where he uh, he he sets off the fire hydrant like a, a booby trap and so then i think i guess PJ home alone uh yeah it must have uh Probably, yeah, probably. Look, the idea that Legend of the Galactic Heroes also inspired Home Alone is maybe what hasn't it inspired? I was just going to say, yeah, I like you just said that the the fire truck was like Optimus Prime with a glow up, but I don't know if Optimus Prime <laughs> existed at the even even then. When did? When... <laughs> and then, yeah, I guess this yeah. this 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 fire hydrant alarm system also calls in the fire brigade, and he says that. Um, the fire brigade are always, you know, the fast turn up. If there's a fire, it will spread and burn down everyone's house, including the government. Um, so they'll turn up for that, but not for the police wouldn't show up. Okay, so after after that, um, then we get the meeting at True Knight's, True Knight's uh, office, mm. where mm. he yeah. has two paintings of himself behind his desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolute psycho behavior. This. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's like having his meeting with Yang Wenli in like a pink dressing gown. Yeah, like he's at the Playboy Mansion or something. With a glass of whiskey with two <laughs> pictures of himself in the background. It's like a joke from like a, a Monty Python sketch or something. Like it's, uh, yeah. They don't really give, they don't really make him a complex or sympathetic character. I don't think that there's <laughs> a very single um, motivation behind this presentation. And this is a meeting to um, uh, approve Yang Wenli's. Uh, promotion or like force him to take it is that right no no this is just like he's saying call your goons off jessica edwards oh right yeah okay so he's like i know that they're your your men you know that i know that they're your men neither of them say it uh but then yang one is like like call them off um and then trunheit is sort of like ah well for the hero of the alliance i'll see what i can do Okay, right. He didn't try to extract any favors from him at that point. No, but then he basically sends him off on a suicide mission, right? Which we don't get to in this yeah. in these three episodes. Um, yeah. So he he is punished for his uh, 
for stepping out of, out of line. But well, so one one thing I was thinking about was um, you know, they they want to promote Yang Wenli, um, but mm -hmm. they do, um, and it feels like the top brass have all bought into like a hero myth surrounding him. Like he's a tactical genius, he, he he can do it all, and the the president also buying into that. I'm unclear if he actually believes it or if it's political point scoring, and he's trying to attach himself to a rising star. Yeah, I mean, I think it's political point scoring. Maybe Tom also has an opinion, but to me, it felt like he's trying to score political points and also get rid of Yang Wenli as quickly as possible, which is why he's sort of like, hmm. we'll go and take Isalon Fortress, which the alliance has never been able to take. And do it with like half the ships that we would normally send. Um, I think he so, so... he already recognizes him as a difficult hero. I think like a, a, he's a hero to apparently a lot of the, the the common folk, common folk, the people of the Free Planets Alliance, <laughs> as we see in the you know the airport scene at the end where the old woman wants to talk to him, um, and she's telling him, oh, she wants her grandson to be a soldier, so on. Um, but he's. A difficult hero from the perspective of the politicians because i guess it's quite clear that he doesn't really like um politics or the hierarchy of power or even like the military or um he doesn't glorify war either so uh i think yeah it, doesn't he tell that kids you don't have to be a soldier or something like to that effect yeah yeah, yeah something yeah. like when he grows up i hope we'll be living in a time of peace so we wouldn't have a need for soldiers something like that that's what i tell when i meet new yeah. architecture students i'm always like i hope we live in a time of peace where we won't need you to be new architects uh, in the future we won't live in an age of buildings so we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i think that's actually what engineers tell each other when they're talking about uh construction projects yeah I think that's what I told you to you two before the um. Sadly, we we didn't have the recording started because we were just doing our warm up. But I think I said to you that in the future, I don't think we'll have podcasts. So, um... Mm. <laughs> um... my son wants to grow up to be a podcaster. Oh no! I I hope that in the future we'll live in a in an era without podcasts. <laughs> um. <clears throat> I liked that the airport they were at was a perfectly normal 80s airport. Just completely. Yeah. yeah. Like the triple deck. They, they yeah. Yeah. They took reference photos from like an airport and then just like, we'll just use this. Don't have to do any extra designs, just an airport. I think most of the Free Planets Alliance environments look like that. And it's really grounding. Like, you know, you have all these space battles and then you end up back in like just a regular old 80s street or an 80s airport. I guess I find it a bit disappointing because of how unbelievably good the vehicle design is and like the little like <laughs> miniaturized tech that they use is so cool. And then right, they're just yeah, in a yeah, fucking yeah. airport. Yeah. Um do they do they set up um a bit of like a love interest thing with Jessica Edwards and Yang Wenli at the end? Yeah, I mean I wrote a note about it because basically Jessica Edwards tries to flirt with Yang Wenli. Yeah. And then he's like, Your fiance just died. Another time. Um, yeah, I don't know if she tries to flirt with him. She, she's, you can tell us. She looks there's something on her mind. Yeah. yeah, there's when, a vibe. There's a vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't flirting. Yeah, it was more like longing or wistful. In another gaze timeline. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think part of good flirting is, and now let me teach you 
always something about good flying, but um, <laughs> at last, I've been waiting. Now I've been waiting for this. Um, I think part of it is like uh, a little bit of like plausible deniability. Um, like, uh, am I flirting or am I not? Oh, you got to think mm. about it. So I think she's being like big brains about it. You mean are you mm. are you flirting with us now? Is that what you mean? Oh. I'm not sure. At all. I'll never plausible tell. deniability. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, no wonder my job interview went so well lately um mm. <laughs> such a smooth talker <laughs> um but but yeah that's episode three yang Wenli um heads off to uh i guess take down the ice alone fortress right mm. that's how it ends which leads us to episode four and a redirection to the other characters um uh, focusing on Lohengram and Siegfried. Uh, what was the title of episode four? Let me tell you. Let me just... I should have put the right titles out. in all of these. I think e- that would be funny. Empire's Afterglow is the name of the, the episode. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Empire, <laughs> Empire's Afterglow. <laughs> um, this episode was a fucking blast. I had forgotten how much fun this episode was to watch. Um, it like because it's like its own self-contained story yeah um and you just get to see them like being kids and how they met and you get all this background for the uh the story of like low and Graham and kirky ice uh, it's just a really fun episode i had a great time watching this one um yeah. Does, yeah, do, you, do either of you want to read the uh plot summary for it i, w- I will happily read it um <clears throat> After his overwhelming, I'm going to read all the typos, by the way. Yeah, you should. Yeah. After his overwhelming victory at the Battle of Astarte, Reinhardt von Lohengrim returns to the Imperial capital on Odin and is promoted to the rank of Fleet Admiral, Admiral and appointed as Vice Commander of Imperial Space Fleet. Together with Siegfried Kirchheis, Reinhardt visits his, visits his sister, Anna Rose von Grunwald, favoured concubine of Kaiser Friedrich IV. Kirchheis contemplates the past, Remembering how he first met Reinhardt with Anna Rose, how Anna Rose was taken from her family, and how the loss of his sister ignited Reinhardt's ambitions to depose the tyranny of the High Nobles and the Golden Bound dynasty. There's actually no typos. No typos. Um, the, 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 this episode opens with a shot of um, the city from overhead. That, mm-hmm. uh, I guess Lohan Graham's going to visit his sister, right? I think that's... Is it called again? Noi something or other? It's like a... Yeah. Uh, Anyway, the reason I bring this up is that the overhead shot of the the town, the city, um, reminds me a lot of the Garden City movement. Mm, the, yeah, 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 the, yeah. The idea of the utop- utopian vision for like what towns and cities can be like, and they're all like concentric rings of uh, yeah. like green <laughs> cities, basically. Yeah, and if I mean, yeah, that's a good shout uh, because if you go to a place like Wellwyn Garden City now. Uh, it really, truly is a vision of what the future should look like. Um, yeah, just, just, just wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and for the people who don't know what it looks like now, is it wonderful? No, uh, no, it's just sort of a, it's just sort of a rundown market town now. Um, it's a perfectly nice place. It's just, it's funny. Like when you visit and you're like, wow, this was supposed to be a utopian yeah. project, and now it just feels like High Wycombe which there's nothing wrong with High Wycombe. It's just, 
the juxtaposition of yeah utopian ideals and reality um, in a place like Wellwood. Worth visiting though. Um, so many utopian visions are um, maybe all of them are associated with like failure. That mm-hmm. I can't help but think when someone says something's utopian, they also mean that it's a failed idea. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Although I guess the um, word doesn't uh, strictly mean that. It feels like it's implied. Like you're reaching for the stars and you will never reach it. Are there any utopian, you'd know way better than I would, are there any utopian projects that have succeeded? Because I feel like if a, if a utopian project succeeds, it just becomes part of the status quo, right? Like if a if a radical design project succeeds, then it just becomes part of the design language that we see day to day. Uh, what about New Donk City in Super Mario Odyssey? <laughs> I hadn't considered New Donk City, actually. That was, yeah. The people seem happy. <laughs> is it called New Donk City because Donkey Kong yeah. is in charge? I haven't played Mario Odyssey. Is that actually the case? Well, he's not in charge of the city, but it's meant. I think it's meant to be like the same town where, you know, Jumpman first had to save the princess from oh, talking to like the construction is still there and stuff i mean i guess if you're going to sort of construct a utopian society then you need some sort of benevolent dictator like donkey kong mm. it may be a good segue into back on track to our i was I, he, he is he, donkey kong is something of also a Taoist fool archetype <laughs> uh, which uh, i would argue you know what? Uh, uh, the current Donkey Kong. But he wears a tie. I mean, he wears a tie. So yeah, that's true. He's he's the second one, I think. As in the first Donkey Kong from the original Donkey Kong arcade game, became mm. Cranky Kong, and Donkey uh, Kong Junior became Donkey. Kong. I think I I don't think I'm making this up. I see. I mean, yeah, I, they're, they're all in the Donkey Kong the DK rap, aren't they? So that's how you can remember them all. I haven't thought about the DK rap in a long time. I think we should use that as our outro song for this episode. Yeah, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> no problem. That's that's done deal. Yeah. Okay, let's get back on track. Uh... <laughs> Utopian Garden City. Yeah. So they 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 go and meet Anna Rose. What do we think of her? Not Joel. What do you think of Anna Rose so far, Kamal? Okay, we'll get to her in a minute. But I think before that, it's, it's his uh, promotion ceremony, right? Uh, Low and ground. Oh, yeah. Does that happen first? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy-ass promotion yeah. ceremony. Mm-hmm. Uh, big white supremacist vibes. The whole place from... Just the whole vibe of the ceremony felt that way to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not want to be there. Um, uh, and we meet and the Kaiser. felt normal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> we meet the Kaiser for the first time. Uh, at that ceremony he's the fourth of his name I- i'm just meant to assume that he's the fourth with with that name right he's not the fourth kaiser he's not the fourth leader of this empire i think he's just the fourth friedrich yeah yeah okay but i can't remember if they're all called friedrich but no i think i don't think they are yeah i think he's yeah, yeah. there's been a lot of kaisers yeah 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 i think so he gets promoted there, there's a bit of like um what do you call it? Um... Shit talking. Are we PG 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 thirteen? You can bleep that one out. <laughs> um, no, I think it's fine. I think I've probably sworn 
before this. Um, we meet uh, Paul von Oberstein. Mm. Oh yeah, 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 we meet Oberstein with the, the, yeah, the laser I, eyes. Yeah, he's got some Terminator eyes, right? Yeah. Mm. I just wrote in my notebook, Oberstein is here, <laughs> um, so I wouldn't forget. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's crazy because if episode. he got your notebook, that's also what he would write, like graffiti. I think yeah. That, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he brings up, uh, so he has the eyes because of the Inferior Genes Exclusion Act. Mm. Well, not because of, but it's like a sign that the empire is changing, right? Yeah. So like, I think the implication is that this Genes Exclusion Act or this genetic, like, it's basically eugenicist law uh, is still on the books, technically. Like, you still can be executed for having, quote unquote, inferior genes. But it doesn't seem enforced anymore, because he says if it if it had been like the previous Kaiser, I would have been put to death. Oh, but, does he say that? I thought he meant that he just wouldn't be accepted into the military. But maybe I was not paying attention. Oh, maybe he maybe he wouldn't be killed. But yeah, maybe he would be kept away from office. Yeah. Mm. But I guess he is also supposed to represent how the Empire's attitudes are changing slowly um, away from this like hardline eugenics to something more meritocratic where someone like Oberstein can rise uh, through the ranks. And and this is due to Frederick the fourth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think it's because of him. I think it's just kind of a cultural shift that's been taking place because Lohengrin is also a member of this movement, right? We find out later in the series or later in the episode that he is like a, a really poor from a really poor noble family. Um, oh. Like he was in like that uh, little middle class house oh, next right, door yeah. to Kirkyas's family, mm-hmm. um, and yet now he's like in charge of half of the space fleet um, in this episode. So clearly, like the empire is becoming more meritocratic as time goes on. I guess I'm asking if it was Frederick the Fourth um, who instigated this, you know, um, movement towards quote unquote progressivism uh, mm-hmm. by not doing eugenics anymore. Like if that's comparable to like how people would talk about um, MBS in Saudi Arabia, and like mm-hmm. wow, what a what a progressivist he is because yeah. he lets women yeah. drive. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, yeah. he's you know doing what he does to journalists and stuff. Yeah, uh, I don't think we find out that it was Friedrich's fault or like Friedrich's intentional. Um, like, I don't want to spoil anything too heavily, but my. Reading is more that like the role of Kaiser has become so decadent and uh, divorced from actual decision making over time. Um, more of a British that, royal. Like, yeah, yeah. That like these entryists and like lower nobles have been able to like sneak their way into like powerful positions um, because the family has lost some legitimacy over time. Yeah, I think the um, his character Friedrich the the fourth. Which yeah, not really explored in this episode, but maybe it is a little bit in a future episode, is that he's also just kind of not really particularly interested in 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 much anymore. He just happens to be Kaiser and stuff happens around him and is he's, you know, quite passive. So I think the this cultural shift of, of one is taking place going on around him and in spite of him. Um and he doesn't really feel one way or the other particularly 
cool. So after the um, that ceremony where he's promoted, he he's like, I gotta get out of here. I'm like, I'm feeling suffocated by all these military guys. It's cramping my it's cramping my body. <laughs> and so he he and uh, uh, um, uh, Siegfried uh, jump in his Mercedes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because of course it's a Mercedes, um, like not a nice looking one either. Like these guys need to rip off the FBA industrial designers because those guys have the cool, you know, um, space cars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And he heads off to uh, see his sister right at the, the at the mansion or whatever. I do not like the vibe between uh, Lowen Graham and his sister at all. I just I really don't like seeing them interact. It, it's really. <laughs> strange to me and off-putting there's something really weird about it do you, would you like to elaborate what you think is weird or are you just going to leave that um sometimes you hear about how like incestuous royal families can be uh, yeah, 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 yeah. and the, the scenes between them don't disprove that idea to me i guess i, I just don't like it i i will i will let me i'm not going to leave you hanging i will reassure you that there is no that, that isn't a plot in the show. That, okay, um, that's fine. Good. But yeah. I still don't like how the the voice actors and writers and animators choose yeah. to have how they speak to each other and how they interact. Maybe it's just that they're both weirdos, you know, and sure. um yeah. and that's how they interact. I, who am I to um, judge, you know? Also, you know you know how posh white families are. Uh it's uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it does have that that vibe a little bit. Um, and I think maybe some of this is over-exaggerated to really show Lo and Graham in a position of um, being vulnerable and, and immature and like he's a child again. And um, mm-hmm. through it's, as, the, as the series continues, and even at the moment, he's got such responsibility that he doesn't really have that. Um, he's had to grow. He's, he's grown up very fast. He's like a 20-year-old and he's in charge of half of the... Uh, space fleet now but when he's back with his older sister he's basically just a child again um right and he, and he seems happy and he seems you know um you know he's joking and he's laughing and he's getting champagne from the cellar and making fun of people and eating cake and stuff well that much i can understand i guess i i thought it was odd just because like you know when you when you write a character who's 20 years old and he runs half the military and he's like ascending to power, he's a military genius, never loses a battle. Uh, he's golden haired. They make reference to that all the time. Everyone just mm-hmm. never says his name. They just refer to him as golden haired. I, I think you, I, I think you can't help, but, um, or at least I can't because I've been researching him lately, but I can't help but think about, uh, Alexander the great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And didn't, didn't he marry his sister? Didn't he have like a sister wife at, at some point? Or maybe his father did, or someone like that. I actually um, don't know. So maybe that was just in my head, and, and that comparison was was sitting there. I definitely don't think that Alexander the Great comparison is inappropriate. Um, I didn't know that about the incest thing with Alexander the Great, uh, but it's uh, kind yeah, of common, it's, right, for pharaohs? Like, to, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, keep like other families from vying for the throne. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that that you don't need to worry. There is not going to be an incest plot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, their, their relationship is a little unnatural. Maybe. <clears throat> um, 
it's, it's when they all meet up that it goes into a flashback, right? Or was there anything yes, before that? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think the flashback starts quite quickly when he's looking at the flowers. And that's the bulk of the story for the episode is, is this flashback mm-hmm. from when uh, Siegfried is a kid and new neighbors have moved in and he meets uh, young uh, Lohengram for the first time. Although he's not referred mm-hmm. to as Lohengram, right? He's referred to as a different last Von name. Musel. Von Musel. Von Musel. Mm. Yeah. They, I thought that was... I didn't understand that. Was Lohengram like a title or did he change his name or... I think it's not super important, but it will come up like explicitly later in the show. Okay. That the actual family name was von Musel. And but when his sister became concubine to the Kaiser, mm. she took on like a concubine's name. And then he takes on her name. Like um By choice or because he has to by I think by choice. I think by choice. Okay. Like reclaims um, it. I don't really remember. Yeah. And this is part of the reason why everyone's like, oh, he's only getting favor because his sister is like the Kaiser's favorite and all this kind of stuff. Because it's yeah, sort of like riding on the coattails of of, uh, of his sister. Um, which obviously we see that he, he isn't really doing um, through the flashback and, uh, and through all that stuff. But, um, uh, but yes, yeah. So his family are down on their luck and they have to move in next to a middle class family quote unquote down on their luck yeah compared to big houses in the countryside Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah um yeah yeah, so they siegfried and and uh, i keep uh, what's lohengram's first name reinhardt reinhardt thank you uh they meet for the first time they there's something about this anime that they decide to draw children with giant heads uh which is a bit (laughs) off-putting to me their heads are so big have you never met a child kamel um, I guess not. Big heads. Yeah. I guess not. Uh, but maybe that's like artist brain because when you meet mm-hmm. uh, Reinhardt, he has a big head, like figuratively. You mm. know what I mean? Uh, he, so he, deep. He's like the boy king. Like he already thinks everyone is, you know, centered around him. Because uh, he just decides, what's your name, Siegfried? Fuck that. I'm gonna call you whatever your last name is. That's way better, Dick. <laughs> Uh, and Siegfried's like, hell yeah, I love this guy. <laughs> I actually, um, this is one of the few times I actually understood someone speaking Japanese in the show. Because when he comes out and he greets Kirkyeis, I think he just says, Namai. He doesn't even ask, like, what's your name? Mm-hmm. He just says, like, he's basically, like, coming outside and saying, name? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's so unbelievably rude. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. I, I made a, a comment about it in my notebook. Siegfried's sort of like it seemed in my memory. Siegfried's like a little bit off put by him at first. Yeah. Oh, but then he meets uh, Reinhardt's sister, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Damn, now I got to be friends with him because I yeah. love her. She's the first girl who's yeah. ever looked at me and touched me. So I got to <laughs> yeah. run away back to my bedroom to freak out." Yeah. There's something about this guy's sister that I find very attractive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can we talk about the rock? <laughs> I feel like we're jumping a little bit. It's definitely ahead of it. He likes he's he. What else happens? Okay, no, no, they we'll see each other in class first. first, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, Reinhardt slaps yeah, and, and the shit out of that kid. He slaps a boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very like. Obviously, I don't think flashbacks are like inherently efficient storytelling, but they do make every scene sing in this flashback. Yeah. Uh, like you learn something new about his character, like in every single uh, 
see, you know, every single sequence. Um, I don't know that I learned anything new about Reinhardt, to be honest. I <laughs> probably could have guessed yeah, was that was yeah. in his backstory. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, yeah. well, the, the important thing you learn it happens at the end of the flashback, which we'll get to, mm-hmm. but um, that, his, that his character was always like this mm-hmm. is a bit interesting to me. Like, since birth, he, he seems to have always thought he's better than everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing made him that way, I guess, besides like yeah. the environment he grew up in. But I think that like it's very clear from these scenes that Kohyas is like a um regulating influence on him. That like uh he's constantly trying to get him out of trouble, constantly calming him down, uh, you know, like stepping in when he's being violent. Um I guess but... I, I would argue that that's more <clears throat> like just keeping him below the red line enough that it enables him to be that way all the all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think Kirkyais is drawn to his, like, directness and his aggression, right? Like, mm. it's um, clearly, like, a part of what he values in him. Because um, Kirkyais is not really like that. Now you want to talk about The Rock. Well, we can talk about the other stuff first, but it's just The Rock. <clears throat> I had forgotten The Rock scene. Um, well, what happens before The Rock? When he slaps the boy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then he... he kicks a guy in the crotch and then starts beating the back of his head with a, with a, with a, with a rock yeah. until he draws blood. And it's only because Kirkyo steps in and stops him that this boy is not killed basically. Yeah. And when Kirkyo turns up, Lundgren just lets the guy go, drops the rock. And then he's like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Does, does, doesn't he say like damn i got red on my shirt or something like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. basically yeah like, oh blood on my shirt what am i gonna do yeah um is yeah. uh is siegfried's um freaked out by his demeanor i think so uh but not like as much as maybe he should be yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah Siegfried's just along for the ride, you know? Mm-hmm. Although that said, in episode five, as we'll see, he's very capable on his own. Um, um, so is it at this point that uh, like Reinhardt goes home and finds out what's happened with his sister? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, first of all, they play in the fountain, and it's the gayest thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Like, the, the, show, the show disintegrates into, like, watercolor sketches yeah, of right, the characters like stars with like around water them and stuff. splashing yeah. and water. And it's like this is just text it's not subtext like don't they take a bath together yeah they do yeah, yeah. or not a bath but they like they're like sitting in the bed together uh, but with like drinking tea but they're naked yeah but they're naked yeah. i didn't do this with my friends when i was 12 <laughs> no no me either joel yeah. come on Oh no! I, <laughs> I I did plenty of plotting to take over the galaxy, but never. never. I, I guess uh, uh, my thought is: is that like, is that normal? Like in Japan, when like you know how they they'll show scenes of like families think, bathing together, like and that's normal. Yeah, it is normal here in Japan. So is that yeah, scene meant to be like, like one of those normal things that I just wouldn't get? I think it's just supposed to be normal. I don't think that like yeah that that kind of stuff is not like weird at all. Also, the playing in the fountain, the way that the way that the playing in the fountain is framed is like definitely yeah 
intentionally romanticized and uh, with kind of stuff. But yeah, no, like the bathing scenes or whatever, just like in Japan, I think it's very normal. Yeah, I think we do stuff. see that that thing through the lens of just yeah the the, the writers and the, the show writers being Japanese. But I, I think this also would have been way more common in Europe. Um, in the past, in the yeah. past, um, not so much in the UK for a long time, but still in other parts of of Europe, I think. Yeah, and is at this point that Reinhardt finds out what's happened with his sister. I think so. Or they're like running to go and get cake. And then yeah. they get home and there's no cake. Um, yeah. And his sister has been sold to the Kaiser. But, it's actually a pretty, like, de- depressing scene when he comes in and sees his father, like, yeah. beside himself. Yeah, and drinking. Um, with, like, the gold on the table and stuff. It seems like he, the father's been forced to sell her, right? He didn't really have yeah, a choice. It's like a mi- yeah. Kind of a, yeah, he, I mean, he's definitely been forced. But, like, it's... I, I wrote that, like... Um, like even this like lower noble family are not like free of the brutality of authoritarianism. Like this person has just come in and demanded something, and even despite their status, they uh, they haven't they they can't refuse him. It is surprisingly effective, I think. Mm. And the coins on the table and stuff—it all made me think of like a, it's like a Judas image, right? Like with the pieces of silver. Mm. I don't know if it was intentional, but uh, definitely felt. Um, yeah i think the dad doesn't even look at the bag of gold at any time in the scene no, yeah, he, he and he says him. says something like well at least i got some money but i didn't have a couldn't have done anything anyway he doesn't really seem to care yeah. about it and when reinhardt like smashes it across the table again he just doesn't react he doesn't go to pick him up yeah um yeah. so i think he, yeah. he doesn't really care about the money either he just um didn't have a yeah. choice and then yeah. reinhardt goes to see his sister who's playing the piano sadly yes and i think yeah, I mean, it kind of recontextualizes a lot of what you've heard about him so far, right? From the other generals in the present day in the story. When they're talking about he's using his sister's position right. uh, to advance his own career and all this kind of stuff. And you see how, how unwillingly he was thrown into that, that situation and how unwillingly she was thrown into that situation. Did, pr- prior to this moment, did, did Reinhardt have any aspirations to being a soldier? It doesn't seem that way, right? Because when they're on the hill at the very end of the episode... He says, like, I'm going to quit school. I'm going to become a soldier. Yeah. It's only after all of these things that, that he makes that decision. So this is another mirroring point for Yang Wenli and Reinhardt, that neither of them had aspirations mm-hmm. to be the, yeah. the people they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I think Reinhardt is a lot more attracted to power and would have been regardless. I think it's already sort of demonstrated in his character up till then. Mm-hmm. He's he he can be violent and aggressive and he'll he'll kind of do anything to get his own way. Um, and then it gets kind of accelerated when his sister's taken away and he says, this is the quickest route to power for me, become a soldier. And that's when he makes the decision. So maybe in a different, in a different, if other things had happened, he would have gone on a slower journey to power or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's more part of his character than Yang Wenli. Yeah, I, I guess I mean his military service is not based on any sort of like national pride or anything like that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems unimportant to him. Mm-hmm. It seems purely about his sister and like yeah. gaining the power necessary to protect her, save her, whatever. Like, I think he's also driven by a, a, some amount of revenge. I mean, it's connected to his sister being taken away, but it seems like it's not just about getting her back. It's also about um, through this incident discovering how. Uh, 
what what the other nobles are like um with all these people dying at war and they're just sitting around and and ignoring the whole thing and he, he does um see this as a injustice or, or something like that um that he wants to remove and we see that in the next episode i think when he uh, where he assembles his you know his team of whatever they are admirals or whoever they are but just beneath him and he chooses yeah. kind of more common or more competent people than um mm-hmm. would have been chosen traditionally i was oh, i see so you're saying he exists he hates the existing power structure that sits atop uh the empire yeah i don't know hate particularly but at least he doesn't respect it and he thinks it's kind of it, i don't know wrong or immoral or something or yeah i mean um it's kind of like he sees it as like wasteful right like this this nobility on the top uh he sees it as like wasteful and idle um because when they're in the bushes or whatever and they're watching the um the garden party the dance the garden party he's like aren't there people dying on the other side of the galaxy and it's like none of these people care because they don't have to send anyone to um to fight and yeah as tom says i mean the show makes a point of telling us that his staff are made up of uh, people from the middle class or from like lower nobility, right? Um, people who traditionally would not have been able to get these positions, but who he's promoted on their ability, not on their um, uh, not on their birth. So he clearly has some. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a bourgeoisie. Uh, revolution mm. that he has some some revolutionary uh aspirations um from from uh from that angle but he's uh he's he's ascending in power and like dropping the ladder behind him for others to climb up sure yeah to an extent yeah not dropping it super far yeah but... a couple steps <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, one thing i noticed that when they're hiding in the bushes uh, this was a little visual touch i really liked which i thought was I don't know. I'm not an expert in animation, but it seems ahead of its time for 1980, whatever. Uh, they did a rack focus where, like, it focuses on the leaves of the bushes, mm. but then switches focus to the two boys behind the bushes. Oh, um, I see. I see. Which yeah. you can do with a camera easily. Like, I guess you could but do with it with animation. Yeah. yeah, you can do it with animation, just using two separate cells, and I don't know, digitally blurring out one or the other. But I thought it was ahead of its time. I think they do this uh, another point in the episode because I I noticed this when Anna Rose gets ah I can't remember it's it, it's in the bit where she's I don't know if it's she's getting taken away or they see the car or something and they're both frozen to the road and in the background Kirkyice is kind of blurred out and Reinhardt's mm. in front of him and in focus and then it like switches so you get like the focus yeah. on Kirkyice and and his expression at the back um, so yeah maybe it's something they were playing with at the time. They, they do it again in episode five as well. So oh, really? definitely an effect that they drop in. Mm. It's nice because in anime, usually everything's in infinite focus. Like there is no yeah. depth of field or whatever. Mm. I forgot to mention the very beginning of this episode before Reinhardt's ceremony, him and Kirkyice are having a little conversation. Uh, and it just made me laugh. Like the whole conversation made me laugh, like how sneaky they're both being. Like, it felt like it should have been from, like, a Hanna-Barbera character, a cartoon or something. Like, they're like, uh, um, yeah, it depends who's on the throne then. And then, like, Reinhardt, like, narrows his eyes. And then Kirkyice, like, narrows his eyes. And the camera's, like, zoomed in on both of their eyes. And then it goes back to Reinhardt, and he's, like, smiling. <laughs> <laughs> 
the whole uh, the whole sequence just really uh, yeah it felt very like <laughs> comedically timed um. there's like that episode of the simpsons where at the very end it uh, like does a massive zoom in on the dog and the dog is doing like shifty eyes left and right <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the episode of the simpsons where they're like guarding the museum from oh no yeah like the cubit zirconia is about to be stolen and and skinner is like i've checked the perimeter everything's safe or something like this and then homer's like how do you know because i checked it and they both like nod to each <laughs> other <laughs> yeah yeah it reminds me of that i guess right before anna rose um heads off to go be concubine mm. um she like tells siegfried uh hey take take care of my brother for me right yeah and that becomes his guiding motivation in life because the girl he liked said do this that's sort of how i read it like i think it's a bit of everything right like i think it's i don't know i, I mean i'll die on this hill that i think that the romance between kirkyais and Lohengram is completely intentionally written into the show mm-hmm. and that like the it's not homo bro i like your sister um like subplot going on uh, is basically like plausible deniability for something that was very obviously coded to be um, a romantic relationship or yeah, at least a loving relationship. I, I think so. Like little interaction actually happens between Kirkyais and Anna Rose <laughs> at any point that we've seen so, so far, at least. That you, I kind of read it as um, his personal excuse for uh, sticking with Lohengram, who actually um, has this this connection with or admiration for, or romance with. Um, um, although I don't, yeah, I don't know if he ever really says too much out loud about his feelings for Anna Rose. It's also just, we, we're told that mm-hmm. as an audience. Um, it's there, but I think there's, a, yeah, it's not really his sole motivation, even if he kind of believes that it is. To an extent, but. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it felt like a mixture of things. Like, it's this fascination with Lohengram, because he's obviously a very exciting person to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's also like he rises so far, because it's kind of, a, uh, as I say, like he's sort of this middle-class person at the beginning of the story with a sort of very well-to-do family, but like no, um, uh, certainly not like close to the to the throne or anything like that. Um, and so it becomes this way of sort of riding along and having this interesting life um along with him but i think yeah i mean i think that you'll see in the later episodes that profoundly he is motivated by a genuine love for low and ground like it's it's uh, uh it's not like fake or anything you know like it's not because his sister told him right uh, to look after him um and i think low and Graham is much worse at articulating it or acknowledging it but he also relies upon like Kirk Yes. It's kind of this codependent uh, relationship where the two of them need each other. Um, and yeah, so um, but I think we'll see all of that as we, mm. as we go on. I think there's already like a, a interesting conflict in their values as well that's present in this flashback episode where you, and, and also the next episode as well, where you're kind of, supposed to see Kirkyais as this very good person, this very moral person, um and and kind of a kind person. And Reinhardt just isn't that. Um he's 
he's not like the worst, but he's he's violent and he's aggressive and he's not always that nice and he's rude. Um, and he, he still is those things when he's a 20-year-old, even uh, in the same way that he was when he was a young boy. But there's something about his ability to take action and his ambition and the sense of justice that he does have against the the the, the aristocratic families um, that I think Kirkyai's kind of like latches onto or reads into and thinks Reinhardt is this uh, he he also he, he has the same values as me or something and I I, I kind of read this into his part of his um, fascination with him that um, he, he's yeah. they're, they're on the same page or something they're these few people who are going to change everything make things better and the world become fairer but i think their their value systems are slightly different um mm-hmm. well they've come to the same conclusion from different yeah starting points maybe yeah i have one last note about this episode before we get to episode mm-hmm. five and it's that uh the va for anna rose in the in the japanese mm-hmm. um sounds so much like uh the main girl from Tokimeki Memorial, from action button reviews videos of of that game, like yeah. the, the, those voices are indistinguishable to me. That's it. That's Did all. Did you the same person? Did you look it up? Did you look it up. Oh no, that would be professional. <laughs> oh, I see. For me to do that, uh, so I didn't. Yeah. That could be our corrections for next episode. I don't know if we have corrections from last. So we have an errata, yeah. That would be yeah. too professional. Yeah. Just, just uh, people will write in. People will write in if they have something to complain about. I'm sure. Yeah, you're actually wrong about the firefighters storming the Bastille. They didn't do that. Uh, also, you're wrong about Alexander and his sister wife. That didn't happen. It's a common misconception. Yeah. We'll we'll hear about it. Hmm. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to it. Until then, we've got episode five, um, mm-hmm. which is titled "My Google Duck." crashed the cast the cast drop rebellion i think tom you're the only one who hasn't done a done a reading so <laughs> hasn't done anything um yeah. okay i can read this are you ready make sure you read out the typos yeah if there are any i'll read them out episode five the cast drop rebellion reinhardt von lohengram assembles his new admiralty choosing subordinate officers of both common and noble birth oh my god namely august samuel Wallen. Cornelius Lutz, Carl Gustav Kempf, Fritz Joseph Bittenfeld, Ernest Mecklinger, Wolfgang Mittermeier, and Oscar von Roenthal. Elsewhere, Maximilian von Kastrop rebels against the Empire. Reinhardt is ordered to put down a revolt. He dispatches Siegfried Kirkjais and a small fleet to defeat Kastrop. Kirkjais succeeds in destroying the impregnable Artemis necklace by engulfing the battle satellites of the necklace with directional Zephyr particles and igniting them, which greatly demoralizes the rebels. Kastrop is then murdered by his retainers, ending the rebellion with only one casualty. For his efforts, Kirkyais is promoted to the rank of Vice Admiral. This script says um, Cephal particles. But, uh, yeah, there's one typo, one typo, yeah. Cephal particles. But in the subtitles that I had, it's uh, Zephyr. And what, Zephyr, I don't know yeah. what the, in the subtitles yeah. I had, it was Cephal. Like oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Uh. So I thought that was fine. Maybe, is that just the German? I mean, I th- it must be Zephyr, because that actually means something. <laughs> Zephyr it's sounds Zephyr. more right. Zephyr. 
this is the Legend of Galactic Heroes wiki. Tefl particles. Yeah. Japanese Tefuru are highly it's explosive. Be it's got to be Zephyr. Oh, no, it's a Z- Zephyr. Yeah, yeah, it's a Z. Yeah. So I think it's supposed so it's to just be... people are like, actually, the original Japanese is closer to Cephal. So we're going to go with that. Yeah, I think so. I don't think it is oh, really okay. close. Okay, to that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a whole, yeah, there's a Reddit thread here about what it's called. Okay, that's, that's, yeah. it's not. That's so funny. I When I read Cephal, I thought that was like named after the German scientist who invented them. Like, <laughs> that's so funny. that flashback. Yep. Um, the episode opens with the uh, narrator giving like a breakdown of the former minister of finance uh, embezzling like the state coffers, um, mm-hmm. which then uh, the state tries to give back, but his son was like, "No, now nah, I'm not doing that. I'm keeping the cash," mm-hmm. which just felt very Phantom Menace to me, like to open with discussion <laughs> of trade routes and stuff <laughs> in a space opera. Yeah, the opening of this episode is very like, oh, okay, wow, whiplash. We've just gone from like this personal drama to, yeah, discussions of taxes and embezzlement. And, but then uh, I think yeah. you get like another whiplash, right? Like you have this, you're like, oh, wow, okay, this has got very um, economics based. And you're like, right, okay, now I'm ready to get myself set. And then you're just in like ancient Rome, the planet. Um, yeah. You're like, oh, that's oh, man, not yeah. what I was expecting either. So we've already spoiled it by reading the uh thing but i remember when we watched this the first time i was like oh right this guy's gonna get stabbed by everyone around him they're just doing a junior caesar that's why it's in a toga that's the whole that's the whole reason it's just a stupid aesthetic thing like, i think at the time i was like yeah. no right, I, I can't that's not what's gonna happen that's too obvious that can't be what they're gonna do that's too obvious mm. uh to be honest i didn't get that at first because i thought it was they were doing greece so i think they slightly confused the the two because yeah like the outside looks closer to like the acropolis mm-hmm. right like on the hill and stuff but i think that their togas are like supposed to be roman right yeah gotcha i don't think yeah i don't think i realized that they were doing um julius caesar till i saw the mm. knife on the ground uh, at the <laughs> yeah. end of the episode why's <laughs> like, hmm, that knife there <laughs> Chekhov's knife yeah they introduced maximilian the son of that that former minister of finance maximilian classic bad guy name Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good bad winning and uh he's like chilling out while the empire has sent a fleet of ships three thousand ships to come take them out uh, and be mm-hmm. like get pay up you know um and then he introduces his chain of orbital lasers around the planet mm-hmm. uh called the artemis necklace which mm-hmm. destroys that fleet of ships now I hope yeah. you boys watch that YouTube video I sent about orbital lasers by Jacob Geller. That wow, really would have been useful for this episode. I I did not watch it. Uh, it's fine. I it's, didn't watch it. I'm sorry. It's fine. It's it's a good video. You should. Um, it's it's just mm-hmm. he just sort of summarizes the history of like orbital lasers in media, and uh, mm-hmm. relates them to um. The Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program, Star Wars um, which is yeah. you know space lasers to take out missiles, and his whole point was like space yeah. lasers are cool, like they look cool as hell, but in media they're often depicted as just functionally ineffective, like they never yeah. do the thing you want them to do, mm-hmm. either um, practically or if they do do it practically, then all it does is like, you know, when you build the the, the weapon to end the war, all that does is create new weapons and increases the arms mm-hmm. race. So the the weapon to end weapons, the orbital laser never works. Do you mean it never works in media or never works in real life? 
well both yeah like even the most famous examples in akira which he covers is like it fucking does nothing like it makes mm -hmm. it makes a tetsuo or kaneda one of them it makes them mad is all it does <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah yeah uh so you know and in gears of war it doesn't work but those are probably the two most famous examples mm -hmm. in recent stuff um and here i guess it works the first time and it really doesn't work the second time although i think um, it's kind of interesting that orbital lasers are usually depicted as um facing down back towards the planet you know so and this uh, is a chain yeah. of them facing outwards yeah, I, know, I thought it was kind of yeah. cool. They're they're doing like a whole Greek thing, and then they named the, the, the their weapon after the the Greek god of hunting, Artemis, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and they shoot yeah. lasers, mm -hmm. which I guess are arrows of light. When you when you think about it, that's all a, that's all a laser really is. Anyway, I just thought that was really cool. That's all I had mm -hmm. about the the lasers. I will watch the video about orbital lasers. I'm reasonably familiar with the Star Wars project because I just think it's really fascinating. Um, but yeah, I, I will watch the video. Maybe we can talk about it because there will be more orbital lasers in this show. Um, <laughs> One fun thing from that orbital lasers video is uh, it talks about how the Reagan administration used it as part of their, you know, negotiations with uh, the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're like, hey, if you do these things for us, we won't build it, you know, and mm -hmm. you don't want us to build it. And the the Russian, you know, premier was like. Do what you want. I, I, I don't care. It's not going to work. If you want to spend your money to do that, do it. I don't care. Yeah. Which I thought yeah. was funny. And uh, they did try and make it and it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, I think at the time, well, even now, there are like really good reasons why it doesn't work very well. And it's mostly just to, to do with like delivering energy to such a small platform. Mm -hmm. uh, like in order to push all that energy through a laser, you need so much energy going through your, your system. And you just don't really have the storage density on a, on a satellite uh, currently um, to be able to do it for anything more than just like punching a hole through some metal. Um, so, yeah. Pretty it, sick if you uh, could punch a hole through some metal from space, though. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the world's biggest laser cutter. <laughs> you just use it like to like etch something yeah, into from space. Yeah, just like uh, uh, Gorbachev sucks, you know, into the. <laughs> that sounds like a Simpsons joke. <clears throat> yeah, episode five. I actually don't really like this episode very much. Uh, I I think it's okay. Like to me, it's like a self-contained story, right? Like none of these characters, apart from the Marion Dwarfs, whose uh, uh, presence is somewhat um, incidental, and they only get like a couple of shoe-in lines. Um, actually get introduced or important yeah i wouldn't um, have remembered that this is where they get introduced if i hadn't already known no, who, who they are yeah. um, so, sorry who is this so on this planet they've got uh they're holding captive or like a political prisoner right i, I don't really know why they've got hold of him um count mariendorf who's just some other noble but he he appear, reappears later on the show as is his, his daughter who's in that episode which he Meets him when he's freed or whatever. Yeah, they don't they don't really get much more screen time than that. But um, that's yeah where they're first introduced. Yeah, wild. Um, obviously, we get the introduction to just a gang of Germans at the beginning, where we just get like their names like one by one. <laughs> just just expected to remember them. Um, 
uh, to be honest, when Tom was reading that out, I did feel like I was hearing a reading from like the Nuremberg trials or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like... yeah, yeah. Um, the only there's like I think the main like conflict or interesting part of this episode is the Bergen Grun like thing. Right, yeah, where he's, yeah, yeah, the drunk guy. He's the drunk guy where he's like he's he's wrecked and uh, he's like being. Um, antagonistic and uh you know um questioning authority the authority of of kirky ice and all this kind of stuff my favorite um, thing about him is that he he is like a you know functioning or not alcoholic throughout the episode he's like what's this red-haired dude gonna do you know yeah. and by the end he's so impressed by siegfried he gives up his alcohol he's like <laughs> i'm going teetotal i believe in this man yeah <laughs> I like I I I when I saw him again this when he appears I was like ah oh, is this episode yeah, yeah yeah I remember this but I didn't remember it like that I remembered it being a little more like drawn out like over time he was convinced um by Siegfried's you know ability um and it, it took some time and there were more conflicts that happened in the episode but he basically mm-hmm. just goes to the bridge drunk and he's a bit disruptive and then Kirkyais is like, actually, this is my secret plan, and it's all like, you know, just just like a kind of trap. It's like a trick. It's like a I don't know, a clever plan. And he sees and he's like, huh. And that just changes his mind in that moment. He's like, yeah. just gets. He, he just knows, finds it he funny. Knows a good plan when he sees yeah. it. Yeah, he knows a good plan when he sees it. You know, um, I kind of read it as like he had been under such terrible leadership like for so long and was so desperate. For someone to come along with any sort of plan, yeah. That just like the fact that Kirkyice had a diagram, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've came, I've noticed came. this in my own work from time to time that yeah. turn up something and give it a shot. Sometimes if someone turns up, if someone turns up with PowerPoint slides, you're like, "Fuck, <laughs> this, is, this guy really knows what he's doing." Finally, something to believe in. Yeah, um, that that's how it felt to me, and I can relate. You know, mm. to every aspect of Bergengren's character, really. Yeah. Um, apart from the, apart from the bit where he gives up the alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> just puts it in the bin and half a bottle. It, yeah. And I was thinking, what a waste! You he know? could have given it away. Yeah, exactly. He just dumps it in that kind of cool bin that's like built yeah. into the wall with the lid, with the lid off as well. Like yeah. he just throws that bottle in there with the lid. Maybe off. it was a fridge. It's just gonna spill inside. Maybe it, maybe it looks like a bin to us, but maybe in the future or, we're not, we're or, not or in the past, yeah, it's actually it. a cupboard. It revealed itself from the wall with a foot pedal that's also like embedded in the floor. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've been, but if you've used the toilets at the Barbican. Yes, yeah, I do know what you Probably. mean, actually. Yeah, They've got, they've got foot, they pedals foot pedals out there yeah. to operate things. That's cool. The Barbican, the Barbican rules. Yeah. They shouldn't go off topic, but that, that, that building is so cool. Uh, is very cool. They used it as a lot of the set locations for um, Andor, the the Star Wars show. I read about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very yeah. cool. Because I saw a clip from Andor, and I saw the bridge uh, from the Barbican. Yeah, and I was like, that looks a lot like the Barbican Bridge. Yeah, I think they shot all yeah, over um, the UK because like there's bits that are cl- clearly like Scottish mountains or something, and there's yeah, like yeah. a seaside yeah. town from like I don't know East Sussex or something. Yeah, I mean, Pine Ridge Studios were involved in the original Star Wars like quite heavily, right? So Pine Wood. Yeah. Okay. Pine Wood. 
or pine pine wood yeah. what's pine ridge something you made up in your brain so this episode is really about um uh, Reinhardt giving Siegfried uh, a battalion of 2,000 ships to, uh, you know, deal with the problem with Maximilian on that fake Greece world. Now, I thought when they first introduced the idea of only giving him 2,000 ships when the first 3,000 failed was a bit of, uh, like, political maneuvering. Because it's like, well, if he can do it with 2,000, then great. He's he's so good because they couldn't do it with 3,000. Then, then they sort of reveal that the plan they use was given to them by Faisan, the state that sold the Artemis necklace in the first place? Yeah, it's kind of strongly implied, right? Like, at the very end, where he's like, how did they know about this weakness? And the guy's like, oh, what, me? <laughs> <laughs> Oops. That sounds like some plausible deniability right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that means to me that, like, Lowen Graham had the plan from the beginning. Like, he was, ne- he was yeah. never worried. Um, that... Which explains everyone's behavior in this episode, right? Yeah. Because Kirkyais is just super chill the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sort of implies to me, though, that as a whole, that this level of confidence will lead to hubris that will upset Lohengram at some point. Like, he seems so supremely confident at all times. Uh, maybe, you know, by... Like, he should be. Like, Michael Jordan was always confident. Um, like, I feel like that that will be an exploit that Yang Wen Li will use at some point. I mean, I think, yeah, like, historically, that's been the failure of a lot of generals, right? Like, is this, if you win a lot of battles, you start to believe your own hype. Um, so, yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely, you see it beginning to happen. Uh, well, if the Alexander yeah, the Great I... comparison holds, mm-hmm. that guy went, like, 21 and 0. He never lost, <laughs> you know? <laughs> In fact, the only thing that beat him was his own megalomania, where he thought he was God King, yeah. and then mm-hmm. maybe Cephalus. We don't know, but mm. that's what. And took also, him out. he tried to start. He tried to start a baseball career, and it just like he wasn't that good at baseball. Um, <laughs> like he was fine, but no. The people he paid to speak in that documentary about it said he would have gone pro. He would have been like uh, he would yeah. have gone to the major leagues. So we can we can uh, trust that assessment. I like that, and we're now comparing Michael Jordan to Alexander the Great as well. That's good. <laughs> I don't think Michael Jordan played baseball. I, mean, I don't know, but he did. Yeah, he, famously, he played for eighteen months. Yeah, the joke is that Michael Jordan tried to convert to baseball at the end of his career because oh. he was like, "I'm so, I'm so good at basketball, I can do anything." I see. Okay, well, not, I don't, not to I don't, go off topic, but it's because um, his father died. His father always wanted okay. him to be a baseball player. He had just won three basketball championships in a row, so he was like, "Well, what you know, I'm the best. What else is there to do?" I see. So he goes to play baseball. Mm. Never quite gets all the way to Triple A. I think gets Double A, and it's still pretty good. It's it's not bad for someone who just switched. Um, yeah. And then 18 months later, he he sends a press release to like the the press saying, "I'm back," and then he just starts playing basketball again, and then wins three more championships in a row. Um, there's a lot of rumors that it was due to like gambling debts and stuff, and that's why he had to switch and like get out. Mm. Uh, during that break, he also shot the Space Jam movie, and like I think the Space Jam movie opens with him playing baseball, and he's like really shit at it, um, and wow. that's why he gets it's sucked brutal. into Looney Tunes world and has to <laughs> play with bugs and Daffy and like beat the monsters. 
can you imagine like you're you've just made the transition to baseball you're really like you're feeling a little down about it because you're not really making the headway that you might have hoped you would and then michael eisner comes along and he gives you a script he's like <laughs> so the film opens with you being you just sucking ass at baseball that's like that's and michael jordan's like oh but then i then i overcome it and I, I i do like a rocky and then by the end i'm really good at baseball it's like no 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 the film's about you playing basketball <laughs> You get you get summoned into another dimension to play basketball instead of playing baseball. <laughs> I think at the end he doesn't ever go back to baseball as well. Like that's just done. Yeah. Uh, life reflects art, you know. <laughs> that's what they say. Anyway, back to our legends. Yeah, well, I mean, I obviously knew all of that about Michael Jordan, but I'm glad you explained <laughs> it for the audience. <laughs> I mean, what is that to say about this episode? They they fire a bunch of oh, it's Kamel frozen. Oh, maybe. No, no, I no, was, no, I was thinking. Deep and sorry, um, I'm frozen in life. I can't remember why we. Uh... Oh, hubris! I see, and maybe it's maybe it's yeah. On the horizon. Anyway, uh, Siegfried takes the fleet of two thousand to to do his secret plan against Maximilian. Um, could could one of you explain to me the secret? I don't think I quite understood what happened with it. So the Zephyr particles, yeah, or, Ce- or Cephal particles, depending on you know which which dub or which sub you're you're, you're watching. Um, these are basically like the shows mm, solve everything, de- like plot device. Yeah, I think it's we basically talked like about this ex- last time that they were going to come up and hit lo and behold, yeah. lo and gram and behold. <laughs> Very good. Do they come up repeatedly uh, after this? Yeah, they come out repeatedly. So it's basically like an explosive gas. And if it has contact with anything like hot, then it explodes. Um, it's kind of the same solution to the question of how do we have, I think we talked about this last episode, but how do we have melee fights in space? Like Dune has the shield technology and in Le- Legend of Battle of Heroes, it's, it's Zephyr particles. So like if your ship gets boarded, you just flood the ship with Zephyr particles. So if anyone shoots a gun or shoots a laser, then the whole ship will explode, um, which may, which would defeat the point of someone boarding your ship, right? Like they're boarding it to capture it. So you sort of like call someone's bluff. So it's a it's um, a mutually assured destruction sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it will continue yeah. to come up. That's getting our, ahead of ourselves a little bit, I think. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's an intentional choice to construct a way to have melee combat in your space in your yeah. sci-fi show but i think we'll talk about that in a future episode but for the purposes yeah. of this one they deployed mm. this gas around the ring of space lasers yes so now, when they fired they exploded yeah i'm not i'm no physicist mm. but if you pump gas out into the void of space how can you make sure it will attach to the like go with where the space lasers are um <laughs> i mean you you can't really do that, but but the implication with the the implication with these zephyr particles is that they're very very heavy, I guess, okay. because they behave a bit more like a gel or a liquid than a gas a lot of the time. Oh, and what? So the um, gravity of the space lasers draws them in. They're basically putting them in an orbit, like you see in the diagram, where they're like just oh. like pushing the the zephyr particles into this orbit. Okay. Um, in reality, if you had a gas, I mean, it's, it's an anime, whatever. In reality, if you had a gas like that and you put it out into space, the fact that there's nothing pushing back on it would just cause the gas to 
uh, you know, diffuse like immediately, um, even if it was very heavy. So things like nebula, like nebulae, which you see on pictures and stuff, and they look like really small and really compact. Mm -hmm. These are actually like, you know, hundreds of light years across. And we're seeing like enormous quantities of gas that are still diffusing or in the process of diffusing currently. Um, so yeah, no, you can't do that in space, really, in real life. There you go. That's the physics corner. I was I sort of thought it was a lame solution to the to the problem. Mm. I wish it was yeah. a bit more clever or fun or something. The only thing that it sets up, I guess, is because they mentioned that Heineson also has an Artemis necklace. Yeah. And it basically like checkmates that defensive like um play like very early. So as the audience, you know, whenever you see now uh the Free Planets Alliance talking about the Heineson necklace, I mean we already know as the audience that it will not be a big deal for them to to deal with. Uh maybe is what you're gonna say, but we also see this this a couple of clips from Fezana, which we haven't really talked about, I guess, and their their conniving ways. Um and they're always up to no good there. How they yeah, how they um are already talking about this new rising star. They they've also identified this rising star and the Empire and what they might be able to get out of him or how they might be able to influence him and and that sort of thing. I got the sense from those scenes that Faison is just a a war profiteer state. It, it produces yeah. weapons. Their uh, goal is to keep the war growing and expanding because it mm -hmm. makes them more money, and that's how the Faison stays strong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we said before that they're like the Switzerland of the setting, but they're actually more like the UK of the setting in that sense. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, after uh, uh, I wrote this down, Siegfried uh, uh, gets. The, the Artemis necklace destroyed. Maximilian starts freaking out, uh, starts finding people to blame. And then here's here's your third Sim Simpsons reference for the day. I thought he started doing the, the Seymour Skinner reference where he's um the meme where he's like, Am I wrong or are the children wrong? He starts doing that. Um <clears throat> and then they Julius Caesar him. Julius Caesar him. Yeah. In, is that a thing from would, history, or is that just from the Shakespeare play? <laughs> no, that, that really happened in history. Okay. Etu, Etu Brute, that, that's just from the play. I, he is recorded as asking, like, as being shocked when Brutus is involved, but I don't know if that's exactly his line. I can't say with any certainty. But obviously Brutus is like his adopted son, right? And... um when he sees like Brutus in the crowd of his murderers, he's like, it, it dawns on him that he's lost everything. Um, but you know, it happened like nearly 2000 years ago. So, um, Oh, so Shakespeare had no fucking clue. He made that line up. Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare was as distant from that as, as we are like, almost as distant to that as we are. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like 500 years in it. And really, really far away from, um, when this scene is set in Legend of the Galactic Heroes, so they probably didn't know. I mean, the so they didn't know the, uh, they probably, what they were recreating. They didn't realize history were... repeats itself. I think they didn't realize that's what Yang Wenli would say. Yeah. Damn, George Lucas was right when he said history rhymes. Hmm. Prussian, Prussian maker George Lucas. Yeah, he was. He's alive he still. Was, so. he... <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Yeah, no, I thought the Julius Caesar thing was a little bit on the nose. They could have done it without the costumes. They could have told the same story without the costumes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would have been fine. It actually would have been like more of a surprise. <laughs> so they, they successfully um, uh, take, take, take the world, take the planet um, without any casualties, yeah. which uh, Siegfried reports back to Reinhardt with, except there is one casualty, the Maximilian yeah, himself. And Siegfried is a little, a little bit distraught by that, it seems like. Yeah, I was. I think that's weird. I mean, I don't think he's like, upset. Oh, I think one, he's one being weird. Like, I don't know. I, I think he's being really disin, disingenuous, which I find. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Mm. It's, it's, it read to me not as distraught that the guy died. Distraught that he like disappointed Reinhardt in some way by allowing oh, one person mm-hmm. to die. I see. And like the the plan was no one would die. And Reinhardt mm. is like, it's cool to do. Don't worry about it. And then yeah. Reinhardt asks. Um, uh, Siegfried, uh, like, hey, we're not like them, right? He's just doing the "Are we the baddies?" meme from, <laughs> um, which I thought was interesting that he even asked that, like, that he even yeah. cares. But I think your uh, characterization of him from the flashback, I think, makes puts that more into perspective for me. I don't know how seriously to take Kirkyice's line there, where he seems to be worried about this one casualty it's uh i don't know he delivers it with such like i'm sorry but he doesn't really seem very emotionally invested i just wonder whether he's just Mm. i don't know really um could that just be down to the quality of the voice acting i'm not sure um i mean since you mentioned it last time like kirky ice's voice actor's performance is pretty lifeless a lot of the time um uh Obviously, when you're like watching in a language you don't understand, a lot of that goes missing. But there are some of the characters later in the show who have incredible voice performances, despite mm. the fact I don't know, I can't speak Japanese. Um, and yeah, Kokiosis is pretty lifeless like, most of the way through the show, I think. Mm. Um, which is a shame. But... Do you think it's by comparison? Because um, I think so much of modern Japanese VA is. The, the like the central quality of them is like conviction. They will perform their lines so hard. It's so yeah. It's obviously like I've been learning a bit of Japanese because I live here and I feel like I have an obligation to to learn a bit. Uh, and this is one of the things that people say is that like a lot of the time when people come from abroad to Japan, they will use like anime as a uh, something to mimic. You know. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, the, the way that people talk in anime is like a very specific kind of performance. It's like going to the UK and speaking like a Shakespearean actor. It's performative, like, right? It's like elev- it's like yeah. just like you're in a musical like, almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I do like about uh, Legend of the Galactic Heroes that most of the performances are very muted, quite natural. Yeah. Um, they don't come across as like bombastic or anything like this. Um, but Kokyo in particular is like very flat a lot of the time. I think, <laughs> yeah. Are you frustrated? <laughs> like this kind of stuff. Like <laughs> he did read as less sociopathic to me this episode for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so yeah. maybe he's growing on me. He's a he's a he's a, he seems like a good egg or whatever. Whatever Reinhardt says to him at the end. Pretty sure that's what he says. <laughs> you're a good egg. What does he say? I think he says you're you're a good man. 
Oh, my last note does read because uh, they do. The, it does end with the narrator saying, basically, next time on Legend of the Galactic Heroes, Yang Wenli takes on the Ice Alone Fortress, mm. and it shows a picture of his face. And I did write my last note is Yang Wenli's face and vibe does give good boy. Mm-hmm. He's a very good boy. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I think the highlight I was think... the flashback episode. Yeah, I agree. I think episode five kind of sets up Kirky Ice a bit. That's sort of the purpose it's playing. Yeah. yeah. Um, because otherwise he doesn't get a lot of screen time because he's always overshadowed by Reinhardt. So he kind of needs an episode where he can shine on his own. He's, he's promoted to, to Vice Admiral, right? At the, by the end of this. Yeah. And what's, yeah, yeah. what rank is um, Reinhardt? Uh, high Admiral? Just Admiral? He's above him, right? They're not equivalent. Yeah. 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 Okay. But he's it does put... almost. Uh, Kirky Ice above the other people in his kind of entourage now. So they're all admirals, and then he goes on a little adventure and he becomes vice admiral, which seems to be a play that they they intentionally, the two of them set up um, to to get that position for him um, as quickly as possible. And I think some of the other characters, some of the other admirals mentioned that at one point. They say, How (laughs) isn't it convenient that Kirky Ice gets sent on this mission um, and and we don't? He'll definitely get promoted for it if he succeeds. And they're like, Yeah, if he succeeds. Which he will, so okay, and then he comes back and he gets promoted above them. Is the implication then because they had the solution to the space laser mm-hmm. problem, uh, Lohengram did that he just didn't give the yeah. solution to those 3,000 ships before so that they would fail and then give them the themselves the opportunity to do this? I think those 3,000 ships were under someone else's command, right? I got the impression that that flashback with the 3000 ships was actually before okay. Lohengram became yeah, I think so. it was like a, pri- a previous attempt to get them to bend the knee gotcha. that would um, be pretty dastardly to, if he did that yeah well yeah, let's just wait and see bad him as well. it's a lot of people to die yeah. to just promote yeah. his friend like that's, re- that's real nepotism yeah nepo baby, Kirky Ice nepo baby but yes, I think it's all set up right now. Like he's he's intentionally got the solution from Fazan and then writes to that. We got we got a short little conversation between the precious boys, Mittmeyer and Royenthal. Yeah, I think that's the uh, conversation I was referring to. Yeah. They get precious little screen time in this first season, but is that when they're fixing stuff? Screen, so. uh, Isn't he like um, passing him tools? Oh no, 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 no. Not those guys. Oh. Uh, those are just some soldiers. Who are you referring to? Mittermeier and Rottental are two of they're two of the uh, like eight Lohengram's staff. Yeah. Admirals, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I the I one with like this. the the blonde one and the the dark haired one with the different coloured eyes. That's tough. The, these characters should have nameplates that's always visible in every Yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Or like health is, bars yeah. or something. It really would be useful, I think, in these early episodes. Um, but that's it. I think that's that's three, four, and five. Uh, next time yeah, we'll, we'll cover, I guess, I don't know, six and seven, maybe six, seven, eight, something like that. Outro time? Outro time. I read the outro last time. And so you shall again. Because <laughs> I, I read the intro both sides. <laughs> or maybe, wait, wait, wait. Are we going to do Kamel's predictions every episode, or are we waiting like for? I I think we have to wait until I have some because yeah. I don't really have any besides that. 
um, his yeah. uh, hubris will take him out. It's a spontaneous okay. segment to keep the audience guessing. Um, I'll keep a running tally of them, and when I have like a couple loaded up, yeah. we can fire. Yeah. Fire the orbital laser of Kamel's <laughs> wild, crazy <laughs> predictions. Fire the orbital laser prediction. Which are famously... Um, always come true. Always, always work. work. Yeah. Always work. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of In the Skies of Love. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of Legend of the Galactic Heroes. If you have any comments or questions, please reach out to us at intheskiesoflove at gmail.com. You can find Kamel at HiKamel on Twitter. And you can find Tom and I nowhere, because we don't have any internet presence. Tune in next time, where we talk about Yang Wenli's, maybe, success at taking Isalon Fortress. told me that the george lucas talk show is doing uh, a 80 hour <laughs> marathon of every star wars product including the holiday specials uh hell yeah i'd be into that i, w- I would watch all of that and i did um but uh, <laughs> that, that's a good use of my time maybe that's how we'll send off this podcast when we've done the whole show yeah we just watch the whole show from start to finish on stream uh, I would do that with you. How long if, would that? If the show, if the sh- I think it's about thirty six hours. If the show got like thousands of listeners, yeah. If there's even like a handful of Reddit threads about the show, yeah. you know, like two or three, yeah. Then I consider that the threshold at which I'd be willing to do, do a thirty six hours Twitch stream. Yeah, yeah. On stream. If we never get any listeners, and this is just like. It would be very sad if, if we did get a thousand or so listeners or whatever you said, and then we were like, okay, we're going to do the stream, and then nobody's joined the stream. <laughs> that would be quite sad. But then we just have a very nice time watching Legend of the Galactic. Yeah, for 36 hours. Mm. We could cut the intros and outros, and that's sacrilegious. Then we could probably cut it down to like 28 hours, because they're both quite long. Well, if we just play it on um, Plex... It, it will have a skip intro button, so we can just yeah. do that. I hope you're not skipping the outros and intros. Come on. Hmm? What? I hope you're not skipping the intros and outros. You keep cutting out when you are asking me this question. <laughs> <laughs> do I do I seriously have to watch the intro and outro every time? No, not every time. But you should listen to the outro song all the way through. A couple of times, at least. Why? Because it's really good. Oh, also, okay. there's loads of like clues in the intro and outro. Is there they, actually, like, or are you just trying to intrigue me into watching it? No, they are. Okay. Like, there's like like symbolic storytelling in both the intro and outro. All right. Well, I'll watch it for next time. I did skip it for these three. Okay. Good for me.